Well, Soul City Church, my name is Jared Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City, and I want to say well done for all of you who are part of the Christmas store. If you gave a gift, if you showed up to set up, if you were here to serve yesterday at the Christmas store, well done. Aren't you proud to be uh, part of a church and a community that's really committed to knowing and loving our neighbors uh, well? So well done, and our work has just begun. Uh, we love this time of year and the traditions that we have as a church and the traditions we have as families. I love uh, Christmas season, and so I just want to say a word before I get into the message today. I want to remind you uh, that our Christmas Eve gatherings are coming up. Uh, we actually have two sets of gatherings. We have one on Christmas Eve, that Saturday afternoon, and then we also have one the Wednesday before, so a couple days before, uh, because we know people tend to travel and that sort of stuff, so we wanted to make sure that everyone can have a Christmas Eve experience. So I want to let you know now, uh, you're going to need to RSVP for tickets. There's still seats left, but you want to RSVP, get those tickets, and then I'd encourage you to get some tickets in faith. Maybe there's some people that you know in your office or in your family that you want to invite by just getting them a ticket today. And then let them know, like take them into work tomorrow and be like, hey, these tickets are hotter than Hamilton. And like get, you know, make them just feel a little bit, even though they're free, just make them feel like it's a big uh, a big deal. We, we really want to plan well and prepare well, and we don't want anyone to miss out on the amazing message of Christmas. So we want to make sure that you take advantage of that. And then I'll also just say uh, this thing doesn't happen by itself. There are no Soul City elves that come and make our Christmas gatherings happen, like yesterday at the Christmas store. 400 volunteers throughout the course of the week to make it all happen. Uh, so we need help. We need folks to make it happen. And so if you uh, are available or around that Wednesday or that Saturday and can serve, you can go to soulcitychurch.com slash Christmas and find out where you can sign up to serve. We would love to have you serve and be a part of our Christmas Eve gatherings. Uh, I want to let you know that I actually had a... Um, a whole message uh, planned out and written out for our Genius of Jesus teaching series. Um, and it was, it was amazing. I need to let you know that first. It's probably one of the best messages you would have ever heard, uh, top three at least. Um, but given the events of this last week, uh, we decided to, to you know, pause that, scrap that, and speak to uh, something pretty significant that's happened in our church this last week. Many of you know uh, Jeremiah Dervin. Jeremiah has been a part of our church really basically from day one. And uh, he has served very faithfully playing keys, sitting right over at this seat. He's been playing for it with us since basically we opened doors. Uh, and then he's also been a small group leader in our church. He has held this church up in prayer. If he's not sitting there, he's always sitting right there in that section with his wife, Tamara. And if you know Jeremiah, you know that for the last year, he has been battling cancer and uh, has had good seasons and difficult seasons. And on Tuesday night, um, Jeremiah left this earth and went on to uh, be a forever worshiper in heaven. And uh, it has been a really, really, really hard week for us because we love him very, 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 very much. And uh, our hearts have been with and are with his wife, Tamara, and their seven-year-old son, Cannon. And uh, again, you may know them, but you don't even have to know them to know that your life has actually been affected by them. If you have ever sung a song here on Sunday, if you have ever felt like there's the presence of God in your life, most likely it's connected back 
to Jeremiah and his leadership and his faithfulness in serving here in this church and holding this church up in prayer. Jeremiah was at his core a worshiper. This is what Jeremiah trained his whole life to do, was to worship. And every Sunday and every moment in between were honestly merely just moments for him to practice for heaven. Uh, Jeremiah honestly was, uh, worship was his native tongue. He spoke it fluently. It's how he lived. It's how he worshiped God here on Sunday. In fact, what we would get here on Sunday was honestly the cherry on top of a life, a week spent in worship. He worshiped God by how he loved his wife, Tamara. He worshiped God by how he loved and fathered his son, Canon. He worshiped God by how he served so faithfully in this church, how he was a son, a friend, an employee. All of it was worship to him. All of it was worship to him. And he sort of set a pace and set a tone for worship in our church. Uh, and I, Jeremiah was my friend, and I, um, I miss him very much. I miss him very much. He was a friend to everyone he met, fun and spontaneous, deep and faith-filled. His perspective here on earth was shaped by his vision of heaven and that he believed that the two intermix, that we get to experience heaven here on earth, especially when we worship God and sing praise to God. He taught me what it means to love God and love others really well and to look really good while doing it. Because <laughs> he was not only a leader for faith in my life, he was a fashion icon. <laughs> and I knew that if I showed up here on Sunday wearing something somewhat similar to what Jeremiah had on, the Lord was going to move in this place that day. I just had a feeling about that. In fact, for the longest time, anytime I had a major purchase, you know, I was thinking about buying some shoes or a jacket or I don't know, even pocket square, I would take a picture and send it to Jeremiah for his opinion on it because he just knew what looked good. And he would send me back, every time he'd send me back these three words that become synonymous with his life. And if you know him, you've probably heard him say him. He would just text me back and say, that's what's up. <laughs> so anytime anything was good, he would just let you know, that's what's up. And that's how you knew that God was still on the throne, that life would be okay. Because Jeremiah would say, that's what's up. And in fact, as a friend was saying earlier this week, he could in one conversation say it 10 different times and have it mean 10 different things. And you knew exactly what he meant every time. And I'm convinced that when I get to heaven and get to see my friend again, he will have talked all of heaven into saying, that's what's up. So that when I get there, God's going to look at me and go, that's what's up. Like, right? So I have, a feel, I have a strong feeling that's what we're in for. That was his way of saying amen. And uh, I, I miss the thought of hearing him say it again. And as I prepared for our time together today, I knew I couldn't talk about what we were planning to talk about. I knew that we had to talk about moments like this specifically. Moments when life doesn't turn out the way that we had thought or we had hoped or we had planned on it being. When unexpected and unwanted things enter into our lives, they give us a moment. They are an invitation to 
pause and reflect on bigger things. And in fact, that's the interesting thing that suffering brings. Suffering brings an invitation to bigger things in our lives. If we're willing to walk through it. If we're willing to find and hold on to Jesus in the midst of it. If we're willing to be there for each other, suffering can actually lead us to bigger and deeper things in our lives that we would not otherwise have found without it. So today I want us to consider the genius of Jesus when it comes to grief and loss and death. Jesus taught us, as we're going to see, and then modeled for us, as we're also going to see, a way to transform our tragedies, to be transformed by our tragedies, to allow our hurts to be healed because of the hope that we have in God. That's actually possible for you and for me. Because here's what we've learned, and if you've been around in this life long enough, you already know what I'm about to say before I say it. Suffering isn't optional. But growth is. Suffering isn't optional. You don't get to get through this life without it. In fact, Jesus said that that's exactly how it works in this world. In this world, there will be suffering. There will be loss. There will be pain. So you don't get to get out of this life without suffering. That's not optional. But growth is. How you choose to respond to God in the midst of your darkest and most difficult hours is very, very important stuff. What you do when you are undone matters more than you may even possibly know. Years ago, I came across a, a church survey of, of, they're trying to figure out spiritual formation, transformation. It's what we're all about here as a church. And trying to figure out how that happens. What are the catalysts for growth? What really causes people to grow the most? And so as I was reading through it, I thought, well, for sure, probably top of the list, if not number one, close to it, is going to be great preaching. I can't imagine that that wouldn't be a number one catalyst for growth. There wasn't number one. I thought, well, okay, well, maybe study of the Bible, understanding the Bible, memorization of the Bible, having moments of quiet study and reflection on the Bible. That's got to be the number one catalyst for someone's spiritual growth. That didn't top the list. I thought, well, there must be small groups getting together. So we believe here that life change really happens. People really grow in a circle more than they do in a row. It wasn't small groups. It wasn't serving. It wasn't all these great and important and wonderful things. Anyone want to take a guess what the number one catalyst for spiritual growth is according to the survey? Suffering. Suffering. It's the number one catalyst. It's the thing that none of us would sign up for. And yet, if we walk through it with God, none of us will be the same on the other side. Suffering is what often leads to our greatest growth. In fact, Richard Rohr would say that the only thing that leads us to growth is suffering. That's the only thing that really leads us to growth. And then he defines suffering as whenever you're not in control. That's a little bit broader understanding of the word, isn't it? And it adds up, doesn't it? Just a quick show of hands. Anyone have any area of their life that's out of control right now? Like a junk drawer level, out of control, haven't quite figured out. All of us have those areas in our lives. And that's actually a place of suffering because it's not as we would want it to be. It's not as we'd planned it to be in our lives. All of us have those. If you have suffered loss, death reminds you that you're not in control, doesn't it? 
You don't get to pick the time or the day or how long you get to have with someone. Sickness reminds you that you're not actually in control. A breakup reminds you that you're not in control. Just being in a relationship reminds you <laughs> you are not in control. There's another vote at the table. If you have a toddler, you are reminded that you are not in control, no matter how much you think you may be. Suffering is when we feel as though we are out of control. Life is not as we would have it be. And what is it that we tend to do when we feel out of control? We try and get more control. We double down. We do what we have to do to grab the wheel, to fix it, to get in control. We go looking for more control when we feel out of control. But what I want us to explore today is maybe a different response, specifically in light of this last week and in the weeks and months and years uh, to come. But for every one of our lives, instead of when, in those moments where we feel out of control, instead of looking for more control, what would happen is if you look for God. In the moments where you feel most out of control, where you are feeling a level of suffering or pain or loss, what might happen if you looked for God and you didn't give up until you got him, until you found him, and until the work that he wants to do in you through what you would not have chosen for yourself is done. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the genius of Jesus. Specifically, I want to say two words. I want to say a word to those of us who are suffering, who feel out of control, who feel sad, overwhelmed, maybe specifically by the loss of our friend Jeremiah, or maybe something else that's going on in your life. We want to look at that. And then I want to say a word to those of you who know someone who is. So you may not be going through a season of suffering right now, but you will be at one point, so it's worthy of your attention. And then you may not be going through one right now, but you know someone who does, who is. And so we want to be the best friends and partners to them in their pain as possible. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So first, a word to those of us who find ourselves suffering. And it's interesting to think about. The holidays are such a beautiful time. Christmas is such a wonderful time. From Thanksgiving to Christmas, so many traditions, so many memories, so much family. And for some of us, as beautiful as it all is, it can also be a season of painful reminders, can't it? For some of us, it can be a reminder of who's not at the table, who used to be at the table, who we wish was at the table. Maybe you are living at a distance from your family or friends, the people that you love, and so you feel a level of loneliness this time of year. And so it's interesting, even in this time of celebration, this wonderful traditions of Christmas, we can get in touch with a sense of suffering, a sense of feeling out of control. I want to share with anyone and everyone who's feeling that right now, a upside down teaching from uh, the greatest sermon ever, ever given. In fact, it's the most famous sermon in all the world, and it's genius level teaching from Jesus. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to have you actually go to another passage in a second. But in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a bunch of genius level teaching from Jesus. And right at the top, kind of right in his opener, usually the part where I'm like telling some jokes and trying to get everyone warmed up, right? Jesus just goes right into it, doesn't waste a second. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, verse 4, for those of us who are suffering. He says this. He says, blessed are those who what? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is a genius level, upside down promise from Jesus. Because at first pass, how many of you feel like you're lucky to have suffering in your life? 
Like, oh, I just feel so special that it's so hard right now in my life. No one feels that way, do they? What Jesus is saying here, it's not that you're blessed for your suffering. He says that you're blessed when you mourn, when you grieve, when you feel all the way through, when you allow yourself to become undone, when you allow yourself to go all the way to the bottom. Jesus says the blessing is not in the suffering. The blessing comes in the comfort that comes from being undone, from actually allowing yourself to grieve and to mourn. This is a powerful upside down promise. Or let's put it the inverse way. Let's kind of flip it then if we could. You cannot receive comfort for your pain if you are unwilling to mourn it or grieve it. How can you expect to receive comfort for your pain if you are unwilling to grieve it, to mourn it, to name it, to even welcome it in? How can you possibly expect God to hold you if all you ever do is run from the pain in your life? This is a powerful upside down genius promise from Jesus. He says, if you are willing to grieve, to mourn, you will be comforted. That's a promise. You will be if you're willing to go through it. Years ago in my life when I hit a a spot where I just felt so confused. I didn't know which way to go. I didn't even know fully who I was. And I, I just felt so out of sorts. And I didn't know where God was at in the midst of it. I remember that pain in me became to the point where I just, I didn't want to deal with it anymore. And I'm a seven on the Enneagram, if you're familiar with the Enneagram. So I am all like, ho, ho, happy, fun times. Let's move forward into the future because the future is awesome. There's a party going on. Who's coming with me? I don't want to deal with pain in my life. And the pain was becoming so immense that I was forced to face it. All I wanted was out. And I remember reading this quote from Henry Nouwen. And for those of us who are suffering, are feeling out of control in our life, I hope this is an encouragement, maybe even a little bit of direction for you to consider. He wrote this. He said that the way out of our loss and hurt is actually in and through. The way out isn't by just avoiding, ignoring, coping, getting through, getting on, getting by. It's by going in to it and then all the way through it to actually allow yourself to mourn, to grieve, to cry, to weep, and to not apologize for doing so. You need to stay with whatever this season of suffering or pain or loss, whatever it is, as long as possible so that God can do as deep a work as possible in your soul. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to stay with it so that God can give you the comfort, the healing that you actually need? And, and, are we willing to be the kind of church that will hold that space for others who are? Are we willing to be the kind of church that is okay with people being not okay? That when you see someone at church and say, how you doing? And they say, not good. They don't go, uh, don't know what to say next. But that you can be with them and say, I'm with you. It's okay to not be okay. Because I think what so often happens is while people are in the process of receiving the comfort that God can only give, those around them get uncomfortable with the process. 
and you attempt to hijack or shortchange the work that God is doing in someone's life because you feel uncomfortable with grief or mourning. And are we willing to be the kind of church that says, it's okay to not be okay? You're not done around here if you're undone. You're welcome and wanted because all of us go through our seasons of suffering and feeling out of control. Are we willing to be that kind of church that holds that kind of sacred space with people? So I just want to say a word to those of us who know someone who is suffering or going through it right now. Maybe you know Tamara. We love Tamara. Tamara's a dear friend serving our stewardship team, our financial team from, gosh, day one. I mean, she's so invested in this church, has taught workshops on how to help you get out of debt. In fact, several of you have gotten out of debt and are writing a new chapter in your life because of her life and what she's done. So maybe you know Tamara, maybe you know Cannon, maybe you serve a volunteer in Soul City Kids and you see the legacy, at the very least the fashion legacy that <laughs> Jeremiah has left in Cannon, sharpest dressed kid up there. And you know them. I want to offer some words or thoughts. Maybe you know someone else who's suffering, who's going through a loss, someone who's been recently fired, someone who's going through a breakup or a divorce. I want to offer a word to those of us who know someone who's suffering. And it's found actually in John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, would you open to John 11? See, it said that Jesus taught us and modeled us uh, what we can do when life is out of control. I want to show you how he modeled what you can actually do if you know someone who's suffering. John 11. Let me give you some context to this. It's page 749, just so you know, in the Gray Bible. So if you grabbed a Gray Bible, I hope you did. Open up to 749. That'll take you right to John 11, right to what we're looking at today. Quick context. Jesus uh, had his followers. He had his disciples, but then he also had friends. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus had friends. Safe spaces for him in a very demanding world and a life marked by the cross. He had friends that he could just be with. And a couple of them were two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then their brother, Lazarus. These are dear friends to Jesus. And in this moment in the life of Jesus, his friend, Lazarus, had died. And uh, seemingly, rather sort of unexpectedly, he had passed away. And Mary and Martha are heartbroken. They're devastated. Life is not in control the way they would have wanted it. They're suffering. And so Jesus hears about their loss and loss of his friend Lazarus and decides to come see them and be with them. And this is where our story picks up in verse 32. John eleven thirty-two 32 says this. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this is a pretty bold thing. It shows you the level of relationship, the comfort that she feels around Jesus to be able to say, look, where were you? And I think this is a really important question for us to pay attention to. When grief hits, when suffering hits, when tragedy hits, the first place we feel drawn to, the first question we feel drawn to often is why. Why did this happen? And in this case, why did you allow this to happen, Jesus? Why were you out healing all of these strangers when your friend was dying? What, where were you when I needed you most? You see, the question, and maybe you're familiar, you've asked or are asking these questions right now. And it would have been really easy for Jesus in that moment, knowing the greater glory of where the story was going, to say to Mary, oh, no, shh, 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 sh you don't see, you don't get, you don't get, just hang tight, just watch, just wait. You're, I'm going to blow your mind here in a minute. 
Because if you know the story, you know where the story goes. Jesus actually goes on in a moment to raise Lazarus from the dead powerful miracle to put the power of God on display. But before he demonstrates the power of God, Jesus demonstrates the presence of God. And rather than giving her answers, well, let me explain why. Well, let me, let me kind of help you understand why. Or cheap little throwaway statements that don't ever really help anyone. Well, the garden of heaven needed a new rose. <laughs> rather than wasting his words, Jesus offers a gift far more valuable. He offers his presence. He's with her. And so let's see what happens. Verse 34. When Jesus saw her weeping, he didn't try and answer all her why questions, didn't try and explain it all. He saw the Jews that were also with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. His soul was stirred. He felt for his friends. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come, see, Lord, they replied. And then we get to John eleven thirty five, 35. The shortest verse, actually, uh, in the Bible, if you grew up around, you got to, this is a great trivia question. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. But it has so much to teach us on the genius of Jesus because what we see in John eleven thirty five 35 is this. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He chose to be with his sisters in their suffering, to just be with him. See, this is the genius of Jesus. He knew where the whole story was going, and he could have kind of let them off the hook and helped, you know, avoid the uncomfortable moments of grief, you know, because they were waiting for God to comfort them, for him to comfort them. He could have said, oh, let me let you know. I'm going to heal this guy. I'm going to raise him from the dead. You don't have to worry about it. But rather than giving them any of that, he gives them something far more valuable. He gives them his presence. He weeps with them. He cries with them. He shares in their suffering. People in your life who are grieving right now, listen, this is a very freeing word I hope you receive. The people in your life who are suffering right now don't need you to have it all figured out because let's be honest, you don't. They don't need your wisdom right now. They don't need your perspective right now. They just need you to be with them. They just need you to show up. They just need you to hold space. They just need you to hold them. They just need you to bring a meal. They just need your presence. And you don't have to have it all figured out to be someone who shows up, to be someone who stands with. I remember when Jeannie's dad passed away many years ago standing with her in the visitation. This afternoon, we're going to have a visitation for Jeremiah, for Tamara, for Cannon. And I remember standing there for f four hours as the line just went out the door and out the block. And so many people came to honor her dad. And so many people came through. Do you know what's so funny? If you've ever stood in one of those lines, my hunch is maybe you have, as people come and you find you consoling them more than them consoling you. I don't remember a single word anyone said that day. I can't remember a single thing. Like no one had some profound, pithy insight that all of a sudden framed death, grief, and suffering for my life. I don't remember what anyone said. But I do remember, vividly remember who showed up. I remember who was there. 
And this is the invitation, the genius of Jesus, for us to show up in our lives, in our relationships with those who are suffering. And I would add to not just show up, but to keep one eye always in heaven. And this is something that Jeremiah, again, modeled better than anyone I've ever met or ever known. That it's possible to actually worship with passion and purpose, even when you're hurting, even when you're suffering. Because you see, you know, you have a greater perspective to worship. And I tell you, Jeremiah would say, oh, don't waste any time talking about me, talking about my life. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what it means to worship him with abandon to pour your heart out, to raise your hands up, to say that there is a God in heaven who is in fact still in control and that the creator of the universe is also the lover of your soul and you can know him and have a relationship with him. To worship even in the midst of feeling wounded, suffering, grieving, that's a powerful, powerful thing. And maybe for you, what you need most, your soul needs most, is to get that bigger perspective, to be reminded of that in this moment. That it's possible, even when you're hurting, to pour your heart out to God. And this last week for me has been a mix of emotions as Gene and I and our staff have felt grief and then had to figure out how to lead our church through grief. There have been moments where I've fallen on the floor weeping, weeping over the loss of my friend, over the pain that his wife and his son are going through. And then there'll be moments of laughter where I just remember some of the ridiculous things that we've done together. And how every time, every Sunday morning I saw him here, giant white chocolate mocha was sitting right on that keyboard and you knew that all was going to be okay. All was going to be okay. Just waves of being overwhelmed with grief and being overcome with God's love. And this is some of the deeper genius of Jesus, is that these things are not in opposition to each other. They are not dichotomous. They actually work in harmony. This is the genius of Jesus, is that in Jesus... We can be both heartbroken and hopeful. Heartbroken and at the same time, hopeful. I mean, you just, how can you look at this world and not be heartbroken? How can you look at our city that we love and not have your heart broken for the brokenness of our city? And yet, how can you look at Jesus and not be hopeful? Amen. To look to the one who's actually already overcome and to keep one eye on heaven as we move through this earth and say, I actually have a hope that is greater than anything I'm feeling, anything I'm going through. And my hope is in the one who's already actually overcome, that he will in fact come to me in my suffering and will comfort me if I'm willing to stay and wait for him. I have hope in the one who sends me to the hurting, who sends me to the broken, who sends me to the ugly crier, 
and says, be with as I am with you. So that's the powerful thing. You can be heartbroken and hopeful in Jesus. And this is something Jeremiah taught me that I'm only now beginning to get after years of conversation and worshiping God together and growing together. That was always his perspective. There was a one eye on heaven. And now he's experiencing both eyes face to face in the presence of Jesus today. And I was reminded of this passage, which paints a picture for what we will one day experience for those of us who are in relationship with God, transforming relationship with God, we will know this. And it's what, in fact, right now, in this moment, Jeremiah sees and knows face to face. And it comes out of Revelation 21. And it says this. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now listen to this promise. Listen to this picture. Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Now listen to this promise in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or suffering or pain or loss all of it, all of it gone. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, look at this, I am making everything new. And that's a promise that you can hang your hope on, is that you can know the God, the one who can make all things new, even your darkest and most difficult days. That he still reigns on the throne that he is still, in fact, on the throne. When your circumstances feel like they're falling apart around you, he's still on the throne. And you actually can have hope that holds you together when life falls apart. That you can know a God who is good. A God who is love, who is light on your darkest days, who is hope when it seems all is lost who is peace when everything is chaos around you, who is true when you don't know which way to turn, who is joy when you feel nothing but sorrow, and who is life even in the face of death. And so what I want to do is just lead us in a time of prayerful reflection and response. I want to pray for us in a moment, then I'm going to give you a moment to just be quiet, to be still. And I want to encourage you to pray for Tamara and Cannon. Can we commit as a church to praying for them, to being with them physically, but to hold spiritual space for them? And for those of you who've gone through loss, death, suffering, you know how much you need this. So we want to pray for them by name, Tamara and Cannon. And then maybe there's names of others in your life right now who are suffering. Or maybe you're in a season of suffering where all you just need to do is call out and cry out to God and say, God, be near, come near, draw near to me, God. So let me pray for us that we're just going to hold a moment of quiet prayer and reflection, hands open, hearts open to God, and then close with a song. Let's pray together right now. Jesus, thank you that you yourself were familiar with suffering. You didn't talk about it. You experienced it yourself. 
you knew. You know. God, you know what it means to suffer the loss of a son. And so we ask you to be with us in our suffering. And we don't know where else to go or what else to do or what to say. We know we can hang our hope in the fact that you are with us. So help us to grieve. Help us to mourn whatever loss it is, whatever place where we feel out of control. Help us to be fully present to that so that we don't miss the comfort that you have for us when we do. And God, we pray by doing so, we would never be the same. While we would not have chosen this, we will never be the same because of it. So I pray for this church who I love. We pray for Tamara and Cannon who we love. And we pray for all of those in our life who are suffering that we love. God, we pray that you would draw close and remind us of your loving presence and help us to be your loving presence even in this space right now as we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to invite you to hold a time of quiet prayer right now and reflection and then Pat and the team will close us in a song.